But let me open in prayer, and then we are going to talk about hermeneutics, which is a really big fancy word for interpretation. Father, this morning as we come and dive into your word, I just pray that you would be here with us. We invite your Holy Spirit in to illuminate your magnificent word to us. I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, that we would understand what you were communicating to us through your word. And most of all, we pray that our lives would be transformed as a result. We pray all of this in your holy and righteous name. Amen. So Evan's going to take you through Ezra and Nehemiah, two Old Testament books. And he has here, anyone see this, this weird word, Tanakh? I don't know why he put it there, but it is the fancy Hebrew word for the Old Testament. And it stands for Torah, which is the first five books traditionally ascribed to Moses. And then the N is close to Nevi'im, um, or Navi'im. It's, it stands for the prophets. And then the last one is Ketuvim, which is writing. So the Hebrews organized it into three different things. And that's really just because I don't know if you actually need that for anything. But before we start on Ezra and Nehemiah, I'm going to ask a group question. Why study how to read the Bible? So this is group interaction. Um, what, are some, what are some reasons that we need to know how? That's good. So we need to learn how to not take things out of context. What else? It helps us like safeguard ourselves from heresies. Like if somebody's like yeah. reading the Bible, we'll try and spit into the tell like, oh, that guy can't spin the Bible. That's good. To guard us against heresies. The New Testament has a lot to say about that. That's good. This isn't just, while we can treat the Bible like any other sort of writing, any sort of medium of communication, this is actually God's words to us. So they end up being the most important thing in our lives. It gives a little weight to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. Anything else? Karen. Yes. That's good. Um, I hope you're all going to second service because Glenn is going to have somewhat of a follow-up on this. In the series, How We Hear From God today is about how we hear from God through Scripture. And one thing he will say is, 
any piece of scripture, whether Old Testament or New Testament, cannot mean for us what it never meant back then. So if, it didn't, if they weren't trying to communicate that back then, we can't interpret it like that now. But one of, the, one of the reasons that we have to learn how to study the Bible is that while this is God's inspired word and it's timeless, it was also written in a very specific time. So the newest manuscripts we have are over 1,900 years old. The last book of the Bible was written over 1,900 years ago. And it was written to specific people in specific places for specific reasons. So while it still has validity for us today, we do have to do some extra work to go back there. And that's not to say you have to be a huge scholar to understand the Bible. We can, the Bible's meant for everyone, and that's something that we hold as a result of the Reformation. Yet, we can't just read it and say, well, this is what it means, or this is how my heart feels. There has to be something undergirding it. And the way I've described it in the past is that Scripture's always meant to lead us to a subjective experience with God. It's always supposed to bring us into a relationship with him and shape our lives around that relationship with him. But it has to be undergirded by objective truth, as you were saying. So we can't just take our favorite little verses and make them mean what they mean for us specifically without realizing what they meant originally. With that, I'm going to break you into three groups and you're going to you're all going to present an argument, um, but in, in any sort of communication, there's three different pieces, three different aspects of communication. There's the creator of that communication, there's the medium, and then there's the receiver. So if someone is painting a work of art, the creator would be the painter, the medium would be the canvas and the painting, and the receiver would be us at the art show looking at it. Same with scriptures, we have God, the creator, the medium is the text of scripture, and then the receiver is us. So what I want you to do is maybe U5, well let's, yeah, we'll take U5 right here, we're going to do the back three rows, and then you guys right here. And this group, you are going to make an argument that meaning is found in the creator of work of communication. So get together, figure out, is, try to convince us that this is where meaning is found. Back, back few rows, you're going to try to convince us that meaning is found within the medium. So the meaning within scripture, the meaning is found here in the text. You guys would be arguing that meaning is found in what God is saying or in the creator. And you, this group right here, will make an argument for Meaning is found in the, rece- the receiver, the recipient. So that would be us. Does that, does that make sense? I'm going to give you maybe five minutes to get together and discuss. And we'll see which, which team comes up with the best argument. All right, I'm going to bring it back in. Can you hear me? Is this on? Perfect. Good. Um, thank you to Brian Hare, who has faithfully taken this first card of the class. Um, we've jumped in. I'm assuming recap is we started with something, and then we went to something else, and then there was a third thing in there. And now we've landed on this, which is really going to take us into the material. Uh, my name is Evan Riedel, if you don't know. I'm one of the two associate pastors here with New Life Church. Uh, I've gone to Bible school in England, got a degree in biblical studies and theology, fell in love with reading the Word, um, 
in a, in a certain narrative form, and reading it as story. So the Bible is, is literature, the Bible is narrative, the Bible is story. And so that's what we're going to dive into for the next couple of weeks. Um, and so this is where it starts, and it starts with looking when we're, we're seeing a text, or I guess we set you up for any medium of art. So, I mean, it could be a painting, it could be a sculpture, it could be a poem, it could be, I don't know what other type of art there is these days, freestyle rapping. Where's the meaning found, or where should we... Uh, be looking for the meaning and who determines what something means. So first group, the creator of the substance itself. Who is the creator group? What is your argument? Why should we not look at whose text? Or what do we have? The medium. Who's the medium? Up top. Okay, and then you guys are so self-absorbed and you think it's all about you. <laughs> Shoot. Bunch of millennials in that group. That's a good, that's a good choice. Why, what is the argument, or what, what did you guys come to for why we should look to the creator of whatever the medium is? So um, if we're looking at the Bible specifically, we're going to say who the author is. Why should we be looking towards the author or the creator for what the meaning is or should be? What, what did you guys come up with? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's a solid point. Before there was anything, there was, there was an, I mean, in this context, there was an author. So there was God, and why would we not find our meaning in the one who created it all anyways? Otherwise, we're straying away from kind of the origin of it, darkness, light, all that stuff. Any other points why we're looking to the creator? Yeah. Well, like if you look at any medium of art, uh, like yes, there is interpretation, but the author always has some sort of reason as to why he put certain symbols in there. The author always has a reason of why, and therefore it's, it's up to us to find what the author's why is. What is his motive for using that color, that shape, that and word? Like there's a way he wants it to be interpreted. There's a way he wants it to be interpreted. Perfect. I like that. We'll keep moving around the room. Text. Whatever you're doing, if I'm going to be a creative person and I'm coming up with a book, I'm coming up with a painting, whatever, I'm going to have some sort, hopefully, of, in my authorship, I'm trying to get something across. That's generally the point. Useless art, it exists, especially in modernity, where it's like, well, it's just existing. It's showing the depravity of meaningless in life. Well, then you're, even that, you're trying to impose that through your art. So... I can have a beautiful painting that talks, and I just wanted to show the beauty. Even the, um, you know, if you go through any idea of, of paintings, realism, um, impressionism, any of it, the realism guys, they were all trying to actually capture the exactness of what was going on and express that meaning through their art. The impressionists come along, and people think they're crazy, but they're saying, no, I want to try to capture a mood within the art or the feelings or the impression that it gives me, whatever the scenery is, and I'm going to try to convey that through this medium. Authors use words. 
It's a beautiful thing. The word, why should we look at the word or why should we look at the actual piece itself, whatever the medium is for the meaning of what's going on? Come on, Ben. Mm-hmm. Did you guys all hear that? The creator has that meaning, but without the medium, there is no message. There's no connection point. It is the hinge that puts me as the receiver of it all in contact with the creator. So that's where it is. That's how they, they had an idea, but it was nothing until they put it into a medium itself, and then they presented it to us in some way. That's good. Say that again a little bit louder. Yes. It, it, it is the thing that, again, it connects it. Like, if we're saying there's love, how do we know it except through finding it within however it's being expressed? Even if I was to say, I'm going to show you how I love you, I'm using words to set up an expectation. There's a medium of, I can't relay this in any other way except for through some sort of medium, whether it's art, whether it's words, whether it's physical or ideas or spoken or anything like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it is. It, we get bought back to the word, and the spirits enlightens us. He uses the word to still communicate. Come on. All right. Receivers. That's what we're calling. Yes. Yeah. It's throw down. Why? Why is it not necessarily what the author was wanting? What was the motive and meaning that he had to convey? In which he did or she did through a word or a medium of some sort. Why is it really up to me what the, where, why meaning is what it means? So if the receiver wasn't present, then there'd be no use for it anyways. 
And if they can't understand, then it's already lost. So it really is up to you understanding. Here's a question for group, but also the receivers. Do you ultimately get to decide what it means? So say that the art or the message got to you, and then you were trying to figure out what it understands. Is, does it depend on you, or should you be the one that determines what it means? Okay, something as old as the Bible. Right. So, so in that, are you, are you determining its meaning, or are you determining the value of finding its meaning? Well, really, perspective is king. So if I view it and I get something from it, then that is what I'm going to get. Like it's personal to each person. And that's something that's so profound about the Bible, is that our perspective in one scripture can be different from 5,000 people. Mm-hmm. But it's still the Individual interpretation. Yeah, just a thought in terms of the whole context of where it's being found in terms of things being communicated through any type of medium. Um, if we're really interested in meaning, I, I think we have to consider as well that communication is not just in one direction. Mm. Yeah. You know, the, there's a lot of dynamics to communication or any kind of medium that requires. Um, uh, if, if, it's, if it's talking to someone, clarification. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in terms of, I mean, if we're talking about any type of medium, for example, poetry, essay, um, talking about tradition and, and the individual talents. And in that, Mm. 
Yeah. Understanding the meaning requires understanding the context and maybe even clarification of what the context is. That's good. Yeah. And that's, that flows into Matt's point. Yeah. Yeah, and... and the point is, if you guys couldn't hear, meaning even in this context, especially scripturally, it kind of bangs off of what you were just saying, Matt, is let's clarify some of it. So in the case of the scriptures, are we talking a meaning that is to, when you say, what does it mean to you? Or what is it supposed to mean? Is the you the individual? Is it, what does it mean to me, Evan, in my context right now in life? Or was there an original, what does it mean to you? You either the people that it was being written to, if it was a collective, or you maybe even a people of God. Let's expand that to say the Bible has been around for thousands of years. And what was the meaning to you as the believers and the followers in this word? This is good. Any other comments? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help narrow us down here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they're not actually getting the real value out of it. The purpose. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you're going to a deeper level and saying it's not just what does it mean or what does it mean to me, but what what is the intent? And in that, Mr medium, you're arguing back to an authorial a, a derivative. Like, what, what is the original intent? And that's what we need to be looking for. Um, even, with, even within music or art, have you guys ever heard the phrase, well, what does it mean to you? It, it is one of the most postmodern movements of saying, like, it, meaning is subjective. But I wonder how much in that, if you're looking at a modern artist or author, and he's allowing that room even the intent of that author is to say, I'm going to allow you to interpret it how you will. If we were to go back to the artists 200 years ago, I can only imagine that that phrase would not be thrown out. Hey, I just made this amazingly beautiful painting of whatever it is. What does it mean to you? 
He's most likely saying, I have a very specific idea of what it means and why I'm creating it and the purpose for which it was made. And I'm using whatever medium it is and I'm bringing it to you. So you have to play with it. And in culture today, we're um, more and more we're becoming a society that says it's subject to your personal interpretation. It's subject to what it means to you. You are the master of, of reason. Whatever, it, whatever the purpose is, whatever it could mean to you, it's limited to you yourself. And I, I would wonder, in some cases, that's great. Abstract art. Maybe there is no meaning. Maybe they're just trying to create some sort of, you know, rise in you to say, there's beauty in this, there's color, there's shape, there's movement, there's something, and it's stirring me, and that is the meaning behind it, and they're, they're limiting it to that. But I'm going to narrow us down to the scriptures right now. I want to suggest that when we come to the, the scriptures, meaning is not subject to ourselves. Application might be subject to ourselves, but the actual interpretation of the motives of the message that was trying to be transmitted through the text is, is still not us. And so here's my theory of, of textual interpretation, especially when it comes to the scriptures. And this is broad, and if you're a conservative you know, reader of the scriptures, you fit into this camp, that the author had a purpose and a motive to which he used a text that was to be interpreted by the reader and that the reader then interprets it and pulls out application. And our goal as a reader is to find the original, there might, there's only one interpretation, but there's countless applications. And that's where we're coming to saying it's the word of God, it's living, it's active. The Holy Spirit's involved. It means five different things to five different people. If you're reading the word, God forgives you. To one, they're celebrating because they're free. And to the other, they're weeping because they're forgiven and they feel the way to their sin. The application ripples are, are vast and broad and they go so far beyond what the original text itself was because that's how application works. It just starts spreading and spreading and spreading. But it still starts at a central point of an author saying, I want to convey a meaning, and I'm going to use some sort of medium to do it. In this case, we're saying there's an author who wrote down a Bible book, and he had an idea in mind of a truth or of a message or something. There was some motive. There's some reason. I, please, can we get past the thought that they just wrote it as though it was historical fact, especially when we're looking at the Old Testament. Well, Paul wasn't real. He was just writing a letter. He was writing a letter for a purpose. What was that? Why was he writing the Corinthian church? The entire, Corinthians is an amazing example because he's constantly responding to things. There's a motive of pastorship, of leadership that he's being given to write to these people. If you look at the Old Testament, are they just writing to say like, oh, there's a history of our people. We should put this down in text. Oh, if that's the case, then we're so limited to say it's, it's just a history book instead of a collected history that has some sort of message or theme within it that then carries that message to the readers. And if we, if we forget the authorial intent and we forget the way that they're writing, then we might miss the meaning altogether or miss what the author is trying to say in the first place. Does this make sense? Any questions? So that's my argument. All of these points, valid. We need to be able to understand. We need, as the receiver, to be able to know. Like, wh- I-, I need to be able to understand this, but I'm understanding a text, and within the text, 
there's a meaning which originates in the author and the purpose why he's writing it. And yes, who, I forget at this point, there's, there's a purpose and a usefulness. Maybe it was you, Ben. There, there's a reason why we're reading this. So can we dig down deep and get to that point? Hermeneutics, which is what we're going through, but you're, I mean, you're going to hear me use the word, but it's hermeneutics literally, is this my next slide? Oh my gosh, I'm so good at this game. <laughs> hermeneutics comes from the Greek word, hermeneutics, uh, and basically interpretation, definitions from modern dictionaries, theology books, um, hermeneutical works, a method of theory of interpretation, the branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation, especially of the Bible, the branch of theology that deals with the principles of biblical exegesis. Basically, if, if, we're, if we can land on a, there's a receiver who is interpreting a, a text and that there's an author behind that text who has an original meaning, are there or can there be guidelines and rules to make sure and to aid us and going and doing the work to find that original meaning? Any guesses? I'm going to say yes. Otherwise, we're going to end up with tons of different denominations and tons of different... Oh, I got myself in trouble there. Otherwise, you just go off the rocker. And it can mean, as the receivers would imply, it can mean anything that you want it to, because one, we're not finding the authorial intent, and two, we're not following the same set of rules to get us back to that point. And rules not as in like strict headmaster, but rules as in just guidelines to help us find the purpose in all of it, to unfold um, you know, the message itself and the medium to get into the meaning behind it. Um, and motive is a huge part of that too. Um, wait for it. Huh, maybe I'm just... It just told me I'm almost out of battery. So, Okay, so that's hermeneutics. That's what we're looking at. Over the next four weeks, which I actually found out, it's only three weeks long. I'm really sorry about that. When I was planning this course, I didn't know that the 22nd, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, is Family Sunday. And I didn't know until two weeks ago that we're only doing one service that day. So Sunday, one service, 10 a.m., no Bible study class. So over the next three weeks, we'll be going through an introduction to biblical types, genres, and forms. So this is the beginning of hermeneutics, understanding the text, what we're actually looking at, order and structure of books, so what is the meaning behind all of it, and then what are the narrative themes both within a specific book and within the Bible as a whole. Um, Questions to ask of the text. Basic hermeneutics, if you're wanting uh, one, two, three, four, these are on your notes. I think you could fill in the blank. Seeing, understanding, sharing, and responding. Basically, what does it say? Can I give a simple observation of what is the text actually saying? What are the words on the page? What are the ideas that are coming out of it? And then after that, what does it mean? Why? Why is the author writing this? What themes is he putting in it? What is the meaning that hopefully, if it is scripture and it is useful even today, are still being conveyed? So what does it say? What does it mean? What truth is it teaching us? This is where we get into the you, singular, you collective. If we're specifically looking at scripture, we hold to a faith that says it wasn't useful just back then to one person. It wasn't useful to, I mean, you have examples of that. If you're looking at Old Testament books, most likely it was written to the nation of Israel as a whole. And so you're talking about a whole people group. If you're looking at Paul, maybe there was a church in this area and maybe it was just a letter to Timothy. So is it just between one and one? But even within that, what is the message to us? It says something, it means something, and it has a it has resonance in our lives still. So what is that message on a collective basis, sharing? This also gets into not reading the Bible in isolation. Well, this is what it means to me. 
It's, it's my own world. It's my own life. It's my autonomy. Don't, don't encroach on my autonomy because I, I, get to, I get to figure out what it means. It's, and God, is what he's doing is inviting us out to saying, in the collective whole, what is the implications? Please, please read in community. And then the next one, so now what? So now that we've figured out what it says, what it means, wh- how it impacts us, what then do we do and how do we respond to this text? So some simple looks at biblical understanding. Right. So the question is, does meaning being autonomous and depending on me, does that find its start in the Reformation? Is that what you're asking? Or is it just our culture, enlightenment, post-enlightenment, all of that? I have ideas, but I don't have, like... I know this for sure because I've studied that. Does anybody want to comment in on that? The Reformation? Why? Which is interesting to think that maybe it's led to something, maybe the Reformation has given opportunity for an Enlightenment and a post-Enlightenment, and it really is completely subjective. And at the same time, <laughs> us as Protestants in this room, we would all say, but that was, that was good because it was being miscorrectly interpreted, miscorrectly applied, and lorded over the people in general. That the Word of God was select to those who can understand it in its original Latin Vulgate form, right? That's a joke because it's not originally Latin or Vulgate. So, um, yeah, I, I, w- I would wonder if the Reformation had a certain part of it, but if you look at anything in history, n- no part of history is isolated by itself and it was like, well, this is the one thing that caused these next few things. Even the Enlightenment, there was a reason for that, and even that, there was a reason before it. Um, yeah, I don't... That's all I have to say about that. I'm sure there's a whole history, and I'm sure there's a book somewhere that somebody's written about all of it. Is that a hand? Are you just scratching your head? All right, just a little stretch in the back. Cool. Um, what's our time? 10-12. Perfect. Um, reading and understanding the Bible's literature, three types, seven genres. When we're, when we're coming to Scripture, uh, if we're going to start with an idea of there is a message that the author has, they're conveying it through a medium, and then it's being received by me as the reader in this context. As the reader, if I'm trying to get to the author, I'm always doing it through the medium. Whatever it is, I'm subject to, he's written it in some way. And as that goes, when you guys are in, 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 in just in your life right now, you know that whatever medium you come to, generally it's supposed to be interpreted in a certain way. And the form is presenting it in a different way. And so we're saying that there's three types of the way that the scripture was written. Three types being narrative, poetry, and discourse. Narrative being just simply just story. They were writing a story. 
Quick, what are examples of narrative within the scripture? Parable, well, parables are a narrative that are part of a gospel, and the gospel itself is the narrative. So the book of John, the book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are narratives. It's a full, complete work that's a story itself. Ruth. Old Testament, Ruth, it's a story. Here's a story of Ruth. The majority, two-thirds, over two-thirds, it's actually probably more like three-quarters of your Bibles are narratives. And they're narrative in such a way that you can look at almost all of the Old Testament and the four Gospels as story and revelation. They're, they're writing you a story, and it's being written in a narrative form. So what's coming to you is narrative. Then you have poetry. Poetry is, uh, yeah, type. Poetry is generally anywhere in your Bibles. Who's got their Bibles? Turn a psalm right now, straight up. This is the cheat. This is the modern interpreter, Bible people, publishers, this is their cheat. The entirety of your psalms is written with indented margins. And wherever you see indented margins, the interpreter, the, the, the translators and the, the publishers of your Bibles have gone ahead and done the work for you. And they're going to say, look, it's indented. You're reading poetry. It's different. Um, you can, within a narrative, you can have a section that is poetry. So if you're looking at Samuel, 1 Samuel it starts out as a narrative, and then 1 Samuel chapter 2, it becomes indented, and it's poetry, and it's, uh, it's his, Hannah's song. Hannah? What's his mom's name? Hannah. Hannah? Hannah's right, yeah, perfect. It's Hannah's psalm. That, that he, she's, she's, she's singing a song, she's writing a poetic section unto the Lord, and it, it sets it apart like that. So narrative poetry, and then discourse. Discourse? Any guesses? That's a big fancy word for letters. He's writing a discourse. It's Paul sitting at his desk writing a letter. And so letter is different because let, it's presenting a logical flow of thoughts. Within your, uh, yeah, the three types. The text makes points by telling a story, intensifying a language, or presenting a logical sequence of thoughts. Um, this is a simple way-ish. If you were coming to it and saying, what type is being presented to me? Right now we're specifically thinking literature, but if there was a message coming across... Newsflash, something was happening. I was trying to tell you a fact of information. Here's three different types that those informations can be presented in. Ah. Oh. I don't know if you can see my pinwheel of death on it, but it's doing it to me right now. There you go. Three different types in which the message is being conveyed to us. Anyone have one of those on the left? California, circa 1990. It was legit. MC Hammer tape in there. VHS, also circa 1990, and then a newspaper. There are three different types that are presenting some sort of information to us. I can hear a document. Let's say I'm wanting to study, um, I don't know, I'm wanting to study England and the country's history. I can find a tape that tells me about it. I can, or listen to the radio, I can rent a tape that shows me it or I can read about it in the newspaper and I can find out information through three different types. In biblical terms, we're talking about types of literature. So narrative, poetry, discourse. Um, types, narrative, poetry, discourse. Perfect. The next one is genre. So if you narrow it down and say, the type that is being presented to me is a cassette tape or a VHS or a DVD now. Are there blockbusters still around? Because this is the only way that it makes sense to me. Do you guys remember when blockbusters... Does anybody not... Have you ever been in a blockbuster? Do you remember those? They were blue with yellow lettering. B 
Be kind, please rewind. (laughs) If you walk into a video store, you know right off the bat that you're in a video store. So the type of media that's being presented to you is movies or maybe documentaries, but it's, it's it's a DVD. And when you walk into that video store, you also have an expectation that whatever video you're picking, there's different genres. And you might be the horror fan. And oh man, I'm, it's Halloween. I'm really into a horror movie right now. So you go and pick one off that shelf. Or you might be a, a rom-com fan, such as myself. And so you look around and you say, oh, there's the rom-com section. I'm going to go over there. And you know what to expect or what the producer of that movie is going to be presenting to you based on that that genre that's being presented. It's similar with a newspaper. A newspaper is, it's a type. Somebody has something to tell you, and they're presenting it through a type of literature, which translates to be a newspaper. But at the same time, when you open the newspaper, you're not expecting what's going on with these cats to be news in the same way as when you open the local or the front page, as news in the same way as you understand the classifieds. You're coming into different forms of that information in the same type. It is a newspaper, but it's being presented as some part of it. And so you're reading the classifieds differently. You open the classifieds, you don't expect you know, to hear news about, I don't know, Bolivia. You expect somebody's trying to sell me something. And I have an expectation because of the form that it's in. When you open up the front page, you expect it's going to be news that's pertinent. It doesn't require necessarily a response from me, it's just information to me. And the comics, you're expecting that none of it's actually real, but maybe it's funny. And Sherman's Lagoon, crabs and sharks can't talk. So it all works out. But you have an expectation going into it of what it's going to be like. The same thing within the Bible. If I'm coming to the scriptures, there's going to be narrative, there's going to be poetry, and there's going to be discourse. But within those three different types that encompass the whole book. So the whole book of Psalms is poetry. The whole book of Kings is narrative. The whole book of Romans is discourse. But within that, we can see different themes starting to rise or a different genre. So I can have a poetic book that is very prophetic, but I can also have a poetic book that is wisdom. Any examples of those two sorts of things? A poetic book that's wisdom. Any guesses? Proverbs. Anyone else? You can keep going with them. Just hang out in that section of the Bible. You're set. Ecclesiastes. Song of Solomon. It's all considered wisdom literature. So you're walking into the store and you're saying, oh, I'm looking for a good poem today. Great. What type, what type, what form, what genre of poem would you like? Well, I'm doing pretty good today. I'd like maybe a love story sort of poem, but one that needs to be interpreted and I need wisdom involved in it. Great. Let me show you to the wisdom section. Here you go. Here's your choices. So Genre, story, psalms, wisdom, apocalyptic, prophetic, gospel, epistle. They're all on your sheet. This is a fun fill in the blank part of it. Um, so when you're coming to the scripture, I'm, you're saying, I have a narrative, but it's a narrative that's just a pure story versus a narrative that's a gospel. I'm expecting that there's going to be different themes from them. When I'm f- going to First Kings, it's just telling me story. It still has theme. It still has characters. It's still written in a narrative sort of form, rising action, climactic points. But when I'm going to the Gospels, I'm expecting something a little bit differently that specifically talks about the fulfillment of prophecy in the Messiah. Good news concerning Jesus' mission. Um, I can have a psalm or a poem that's a psalm, but I can also have a poem that is maybe apocalyptic. If you're looking at any poetry within the book of Daniel, most likely it's not a psalm. It's not 
just a song that he's singing about something and God and his faithfulness. Very specifically, he's talking apocalyptically within that book. And we read that differently. I could have a story that's apocalyptic and a story that's prophetic. This is a difference that I think we really need to pay attention to. Um, Can you guys guess which one's which on your sheet? A message given directly from God or highly symbolic universal text focusing on end times. Which one's which? Apocalyptic is end times. Prophetic is a message from God. And sometimes we, this is a nuance that we really need to pay attention to. Because sometimes we get to Matthew and we're saying, man, Matthew's all about the end times. Look at all the end time stuff he's talking about. And you can go, there are references to that, but as a whole, Matthew is not trying to convey to us about the end times. He's trying to convey to us about the kingdom of God. However, when we're coming to someone like Daniel, Revelation, we're seeing stories that are very specifically, you can kind of say, the whole of the genre, overarching, this is about the end times. But then we go right next door to him, and we say, well, what about Isaiah? Or if you're British, Isaiah. What happens when we come to him? Am I reading his end times references different than I'm reading Daniel? Yes, because Isaiah, oh, my computer just died. That's okay. You guys got the whole of it, right? If you're reading a a prophetic thing, it is a message from God. It's basically saying this is the way of the Lord, either now, in general, or there's a cause and effect that this is the way of the Lord and this is how it's going to play out in, in later times. He's not always saying the end times. The end times really comes into place when we're talking about the day of the Lord, whenever that is. Was the day of the Lord Jesus? Was the day of the Lord when Jesus returns? Sometimes we don't know. But in general, it really helps when we're, if we're looking at Isaiah to say, I'm not thinking of the whole of this as an end times prophecy. There may be pieces in there, but the whole of it, he's trying to convey a message from God to us. So even when I get to those in later days, at the end, at whenever we're looking forward, I'm not thinking of it as, well, the, all of it, or even that specific section, is an apocrypha. So it's, it's all end times. It's all kind of what's going to happen in the apocalypse and all that stuff. He's really narrowing it down to saying, this is the way of the Lord. And guess what? The end times is included in that, but it's not specifically what I'm trying to convey. Where there's other books that it's all end times. Daniel. Revelation, so on and so forth. So, um, did you guys get all the answers into those questions? Telling an event in multiple events. Um, story, psalm is the answer to number two, uh, or poem. Insights for learning, observed from the world, wisdom. The next one is prophetic, a message given, or apocalyptic, prophetic, good news concerning Jesus' mission, um, gospel. A New Testament letter is epistle. Is that what it says? Some of the epistles are... They're a little bit off, but they're great. After that, if you wanted to, if you wanted to say, here's the type, I'm understanding it as narrative poetry discourse. Here's the, here's the genre. It really fits into one of these categories. You can whittle it down, and there's, uh, there's like 65 forms that each sentence or each like, overall uh, paragraph could take. Riley? Or... Well, I mean, all of the epistles are generally, if we're talking discourse, epistle, all of them are generally like that, but some of them fall a little bit into a different category, like Thessalonians is much more about the end times than any of the other epistles. Um, 
So most of the time, they're just dealing with, like, the epistles are broken down into categories, uh, like um, the pastoral letters, so that's Timothy's, um, so on. And some of them, Thessalonians specifically, are much more, he's talking about the day of the Lord. Which, funnily enough, it's, those are like the earliest letters, because Paul was like super convinced, he's coming back in our lifetime, I'm going to talk about the end of the Lord. And then he settles in and he goes, maybe he's not coming back in my lifetime. I'll generally give Christian rules for living and how you as a community can respond. So most every discourse is an epistle, and it just falls within that. This is written in a letter form, and it's a genre of just a very personal letter. You can make some arguments of apocalyptic when you're talking about things like Thessalonians, but not, it wouldn't totally fall into that category. Um, but then you get down into forms, and there are things like allegory, chiasm, blessings, curse, dialogue, doxology, epilogue, exhortation. The rest of it's on your sheet, thanksgiving, irony. Uh, and those are important to note because if you're, if you're really getting into a piece of the scripture that's talking about a, a specific, um, like with, within a, if I'm talking about a letter, so it's, my mind is just totally fried right now. The highest ranking one. This is why I have my notes. Poetry narrative discourse. So if it's a discourse and it's an epistle, the opening line are going to be greetings and blessings. So that's what we're talking about when we're formed. Like this is very specifically a greeting and blessing. And we were just talking about this this past week with the health and wealth gospel people, um, which is super fun because in the beginning of 3 John, he does this very broad swooping opening. Blessings to you and prosperity on all that you do. But he's limiting it to a blessing, and he's not actually bringing it into some sort of formed argument. He's not saying, hey, the Lord is willing prosperity on you, and therefore we're going to take that verse, and we're going to be prosperous, because look, the Lord just told us to. It's basically like a, hey, dude, what's up? And you're not really expecting an answer, because you're passing on the street. It's just a general greeting that he's giving. Um, And they're written that way, where the word of God needs to be understood within its context, narrative, poetry, discourse form, all that stuff. Okay, this takes us and we land on Ezra Nehemiah. The next two weeks specifically, we're going to dive in. I think we have like 10 minutes left today. Uh, Almost, great. Very specifically, Ezra Nehemiah. Why Ezra Nehemiah? Why did I choose this one? Was anybody in Jonah last fall? I went through Jonah. Did you learn anything new about Jonah? Perfect. The book of Jonah, is it about a whale eating a guy in obedience to God? Maybe kind of possibly. But there's also an overarching message with themes in it that Jonah and carries and encompasses and then teaches us. Same thing with Ezra and Nehemiah, and I think to some degree um, we're limited because we don't do a little bit more work. So right off the bat, what have you guys ever been taught about the book of Ezra and Nehemiah? What messages have you ever heard? What preachers have you ever read? What books have ever referenced it? Have you guys ever studied it ever? That's okay. You don't need that answer. Rebuilding the wall. What's it about? It's about the wall. And what about the wall? What does that teach us? I don't know. Yeah, me neither. Great. Faithfulness to God's calling. That's what it's about. He brought him back. He did bring him back. What was that over there? It was his promise that they So his promise, they come back, they rebuild the wall. Nehemiah was going to destroy the city? No, I don't think there's... I mean, it's, it's more... Yeah. All right. 
most likely, this is the only sermons I've ever heard on the book, it's about faithfulness, it's about building, so we're going to give an ask for money so we could build a building, and it's about being the workmen who are building with one and have your sword on the other, so it's also leadership principles and how to project manage, right? Um, there, was, there was a, and I, I hope, I don't think she's here today, but I was, I was mentioning this to somebody yesterday, we did an event, and one of the ladies there was saying, Nehemiah is one of the best examples of project management like, that the scripture gives us. It's all about project management. And I was thinking to myself, no, it's not. But I'm not going to tell you that because I don't know you and you don't have three weeks to sit in the class. If you guys have your Bibles, left, this is, we're going to close and this is going to be longer, but you guys, I want you to open up to the last one or two chapters of Ezra. You guys, the last one or two chapters of Nehemiah. Read them very quickly and then tell me what your general sense of the book is, if they did good or bad, if they're good leaders or bad leaders, if they fulfilled their work or not. Like, when you read just those chapters, do you get a sense of these guys were legit? They were faithful, they rebuilt the wall, they did all this other stuff? Or was there something else going on? So, last two chapters of Nehemiah, last two chapters of Ezra. So again, positives and negatives from the end of those chapters. (laughs) Brooks, is that face in response to what you're reading right now? Or even ideas in those chapters, especially you Nehemiah people. Things where you're like, wow, this is really great. And things where you're like, wow, this is maybe the opposite of really great. <laughs> same, thing with, uh, same thing with Ezra, but you've got you to gotta fight through some of the language of what they're actually doing in that book.
And then what does he do to them? That's my favorite part. The setup works really well if you've actually ever been in that church service where somebody's used Ezra Nehemiah as an amazing example of leadership. Um, and I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying maybe, that, maybe, maybe that's not what the book's about. And so if it's only upheld in that light, we're missing something and then it ends really weird. So, All right, I'm going to bring it in. Ezra, people, how's the book end? It's, it's like 10 chapters and 13 chapters or something like that. How's the book end? This, this part's my favorite, actually not. He what? Uh-huh. The, so the people, so Ezra, he comes back and he tries to do all this rebuilding. He rebuilds the temple. They return in the land. They reestablish the, uh, the priesthood. They have the people, like, cleanse themselves. Is there anything that you saw in the midst of that cleansing that maybe you were like... But <laughs> what is the words that your Bible actually uses for that? Expelled. Hey guys, we need to do a better job and you married all these foreign people and you had kids. So what I need you to do is go ahead and divorce them and then send them away as single moms. End of book. If this is about leadership, maybe we're missing it. If it's about rebuilding, maybe there's something that we're still not seeing. We're going to talk about that. Nehemiah people, how's the book go? How's it end at least? They finished the wall. Uh huh. And they fall back into sin. Mm hmm. They do it again. And then the last thing that he does as far as really good leadership, like if your people really aren't paying attention, what should you do? People in the back, you guys got this. Curse them, beat them, pulled out their hair. Is this a book about leadership. Oh gosh, I hope not. I, based on how they end, and if the ending's like really wrapping up kind of the book, like here's the complete thought, I have a message for you, here's how it end. I made you divorce your wives and send them and their kids away. I beat you, I cursed you, I pulled out your hair, and I expelled all the foreign things again, even though all the people fell away yet again. Like, maybe that wasn't... Either it's a really bad example of leadership or we're missing the whole message of the book. What we're going to do over the next two weeks is follow some hermeneutical guidelines to talk about how to find the meaning of a book. According to the author, using the text as the medium for the message to coming, and then how do we, as the receiver, take it in and respond well. Sound good? All right, let me pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. Let our hearts be stirred on, spurred on to you. For your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.